and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. You know, I might work in Washington, but I still start my day reading the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's the largest paper in Pennsylvania, and it has great local, statewide, and national perspective and really unique original reporting. In our final episode framing the 2020 elections, I'm really looking forward to reflecting backward with a reporter who has put on countless, countless road miles over the last 12 months. He's on a first-name basis with the entire Pennsylvania congressional delegation. He's reported not just from Capitol Hill, but uh, from each corner of the Commonwealth. I'd say he's probably covered Senator Toomey more than any other reporter in the country. Uh, His name's Jonathan Tamari, and he's the Inquirer's Washington-based national politics reporter. He's been with the paper over a dozen years. To use his words, he's described this last year as the most intense, quote-unquote, of his career. And he certainly has great perspective on uh, what this intensity might mean for 2022. So, Jonathan, thanks very much for joining us on PA Kitchen Table Politics. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I remember the first time we met, it was down in Miami. Uh, It was at the first of many, many Democratic presidential primary debates. My main takeaway was not to wear a suit and tie in June in Miami. But if you can think back to uh, June 2019, when we had a, a John Hickenlooper who wasn't a senator, Kamala Harris, who was a senator, when you watched that debate from down there and you were gearing up for the 2020 cycle, what lens were you looking through? Well, at that point in time, there was such a sprawling Democratic field that we were trying to figure out what direction Democrats were going to take. Um, you know, you had Bernie Sanders, you had people like Eric Swalwell, you had Elizabeth Warren, and I'm sure people will remember, you know, that was the night Kamala Harris, you know, went after Joe Biden pretty hard on his record on race and landed some pretty tough blows on him. And and a lot of people thought that Biden did not look good that night. It did not respond well. And that would be the first of many times I think that he would be prematurely counted out or discounted um, in that campaign. But, you know, that's what we were really looking for. We knew Democrats were desperate to beat Donald Trump, but they had so many options about how to go about it. And, you know, which way would they do it? Joe Biden, we knew polling showed would be the favorite, but we thought maybe he was a soft favorite. And I think a lot of people left that night with that impression. And obviously that turned out to be mistaken at that point. Well, other than the uh, the heat and humidity outside and certainly the heat on the, the stage there at the Arsh Center, you, you described this as the most intense cycle of your career. So what, why did you choose that adjective? I mean, you've been with the Inquirer about a dozen years. You've seen a lot uh, of twists and turns in politics and Capitol Hill and following uh, everything that happens here in Washington. But why was this the most intense? Yeah, I think partly it's the nature of President Trump. Uh, I think from his first moments in office, it's been nonstop in in Washington, you know, people starting the day, seeing what he has said on Twitter and 
just, you know, he could light any plans you might have on fire with a tweet, with an off-the-cuff statement in a press conference. You know, most presidents, uh, you know, are pretty controlled and pretty scripted, and he was anything but that. And there was just a controversy a day, and as soon as you started to focus on one controversy, there was a new one that came up. And then I think as well, just the intensity of the emotion that he stirred, both among his supporters and among his critics, just meant that there was so much scrutiny on our work, so much energy behind this election, so many people who wanted to know what was happening with this election, to know who was going to win, or to have insight into what was driving the election, but also who were, you know, very eager to very fiercely let us know what they thought of our reporting and our coverage. And I don't know that I've ever seen an electorate just so engaged. I mean, I covered the 2016 Senate race in Pennsylvania between Pat Toomey and Katie McGinty. And that race set records at the time for the amount of spending on television. Uh, And both parties desperately wanted to win that seat. You know, I think there was a lot of thinking that that race could have decided who was going to control the Senate. But there was never the same grassroots intensity from readers or just from everyday voters who you would meet about that race. And that was just completely different in this presidential race. Just the feedback we would get by email, the the intensity of the interviews, and just the pace of the news every single day. You know, we're going to spend the next while talking about 2020, but I need to ask you, I mean, you were there on January 6th, literally there in the Capitol, and then two weeks later, you were there on Inauguration Day. Uh, So speaking of intensity, if you're open to sharing uh, the emotions and everything that happened that day for you personally. Yeah, I mean, I've written about this. You know, I was in the House chamber on the 6th watching the debate. We knew Pennsylvania was going to be one of those few states that had an objection that was going to lead to a debate and a vote. So it was going to be a very important day for us coverage-wise. But being in the chamber, I mean, you know, part of the intensity of the election cycle was COVID and, and just kind of the uncertainty that that brought. And so I had not been to the Capitol very much in 2020 um, and really had not been there for months. And when you come back in, there is this feeling of privilege and reverence of being in there. But then as the debate's unfolding, you know, I'm seeing on my phone, you know, these tweets about violence starting to escalate, people maybe entering the Capitol. And then when I saw, you know, security came to the House floor and rushed Steny Hoyer off the floor, that's when you started to know things were getting pretty serious. And the Capitol Police said, you know, they've breached the Capitol. They've fired tear gas in the rotunda, which is just unthinkable to me. If anybody has, you know, been to that rotunda, it's pretty much everybody's favorite spot in the Capitol and a place you can go to at night and think or early in the morning before the tourists arrive and just kind of marvel at the just the aesthetics of it and, and all the history that has taken place there. People have lied in state there. And so I'm in the House chamber, both trying to tweet the news that's happening and and what's unfolding in front of me and texting my wife, who's watching television and seeing these scenes and knows that I'm in the building. And I'm trying to balance both, you know, being aware for my own safety, but also trying to report what we know at that moment is uh, an historic event. And I will never forget, you know, seeing a that giving us gas masks, you know, I'd seen gas masks in the Capitol They're in these duffel bags that are labeled, you know, escape hoods, but I never thought I would ever have to deploy one. And then seeing the Capitol Police move a bureau in front of the door as as people started smashing the windows in the door and pull their guns out on the House floor 
while we're kind of hiding in a corner of the chamber waiting for them to clear a way for us to get out is just unthinkable. And so I'm tweeting that, I'm texting my wife. And uh, obviously, I mean, it was a day that, you know, I feel okay, honestly, these days, but I've talked to a lot of colleagues who are there with me who, you know, they felt shaken. And even going back for the inauguration, it, it was, it was, it's strange to see such a militarized campus because it's always been a place that's open to people to come to see their government in action, to come run, walk their dog, sit outside the Capitol and have lunch, uh, and to see razor wire and troops with rifles is is jarring and and nerve-wracking to this day and, and and it was on inauguration day as well well i mean i know i speak for many uh you know, thank you for reporting the news and uh the doing it in real time and look i know that journalism's changed a lot over the last dozen years you've been with the inquirer but um, i certainly start my day and i'm sure many of our listeners do reading you and your colleagues let me ask you I mean, one of the really excellent pieces that i enjoyed more than so many others uh, across this cycle and why I was so eager to have you join uh, my kitchen table uh, was something titled The Divided States of Pennsylvania. You found 100 very, very different Pennsylvanians from all different corners of the Commonwealth. And I would encourage listeners to go back even now that the dust seems to have finally settled on the 2020 election and reflect on that. But you could just tell folks kind of the genesis of that project and your main takeaways uh, from that project because I do think you encountered quite possibly folks who who did travel uh, down on January 6th and and still firmly are in President Trump's camp. Yeah. So the genesis of it was that, you know, I would write a lot about poll stories as part of my beat. And I would every time we wrote a story that said that Joe Biden was winning, uh, I would get all these emails from people saying, you know, how could this be right? I don't know anybody who votes for Joe Biden. All I see are Trump flags. And I would think, well, you know, depending on which part of Pennsylvania you're in, that's probably true. But at the same time, I could take you to parts of Philadelphia or parts of the Philly suburbs where there's probably nobody who supports Donald Trump or extremely few people who support Donald Trump. Uh, And where you might get the impression that Joe Biden has 90 percent support, even though we knew that wasn't the case overall. And so it just made me think about how within one state you have just such varied elements of geography, of economy, of racial mix. And so I wanted to kind of capture how this one state had so many of these different divides that I think honestly play out nationwide, all contained within one place. And in so many different ways, that includes divisions on racial grounds where you have some very diverse parts of of Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, versus areas that are almost entirely white. That includes economic grounds, which I think is one of the real driving factors that the areas like Philadelphia and its suburbs had these dynamic economies that draw people from all over the country to come there for opportunity. And and they have uh, opportunities to make good lives for themselves. And I interviewed a number of those people in Chester County who grew up other places, but came to that area for professional, their professional reasons that have had success. And then you go out to other areas that are kind of stagnant economies like, um, you know, Cambria County and parts of Erie County where, you know, what what had been their economy has collapsed and not been replaced. And people told me about how, you know, their kids had to leave and are never coming back because that's where the opportunity was and, and just the differences there. And even just how geography shapes things, living in a city versus living in a rural area where, you know, your neighbors are far away and the police are so far away. And instead of going to coffee shops and restaurants, you spend your weekends going hunting and 
and, and out in the in the woods. And so all those factors in one state. So my goal was to try to capture all of those things and how those make the state so divided, even within the same place. I got to ask you, so you've been a reporter about two decades, been with the Inquirer about 12 years. What is it about Pennsylvania? And you take a look at kind of the new it swing states, Georgia, Arizona. You take a look at Virginia over the last two decades and how much it's changed. But the demographics and the population dynamics that you're mentioning, this is not squarely Pennsylvania, or, or maybe it is. I mean, is there something unique about the Pennsylvania political landscape that we remain purple? I think part of it is just the scale of everything. You know, yes, it's, it is not unique to have all those things mixed together, but I think it is unusual to have them in quite such a balance as Pennsylvania is. You know, there is a vast, vast rural area, and that is an area that President Trump has done incredibly well in. And so there is a ton of votes out there for a message like the one that President Trump has delivered. Former President Trump, I should say now, but president. At the same time, you have Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. I mean, Philadelphia is one of the five biggest cities in the country, and Pittsburgh is a very large city, and both are much bigger than places even like Detroit. And so I think there's just a balance, and I think also a realignment of the votes in, in a way where there's, the suburbs have moved very much more in the democratic direction, but those rural areas are moving just as strongly or, or similarly strongly in a conservative direction. And so even though they're, each party is gaining ground in some areas, they're kind of offsetting each other. And I think President Trump's message to those rural voters was, we're going to find out now that he's off the ballot. But we, the, there is a lot of evidence that his appeal was unique in that area, but also that his repelled suburban voters in a unique way, in a way that a Pat Toomey, for example, did not when he was on the ballot in 2016. And so I think that is that his presence kind of played towards Pennsylvania's dynamics in, in a somewhat unusual way. Well, let's, I mean, you mentioned Senator Toomey, uh, and certainly we'll get to 2022. You know, I want to kind of take a look at 2016 versus 2020. I think uh, a lot of listeners uh, had their eyes and a lot of listeners come from the three pivot counties that were historically Democrat, Erie, Luzerne, and Northampton, or as someone once told me, my friend Len, uh, so reversing the order. <laughs> and then they flipped in 2016. I think much to everyone's surprise, certainly the clinton Kane headquarters uh, were surprised about that. But was that strictly something in President Trump? Or was that something in President Trump's message? And with an eye to 2022, do you see any candidate, if you were able to kind of create the, the perfect Pennsylvania candidate able to capture and, and energize that enthusiasm? or I don't think it was strictly President Trump, because I think some of these, especially Luzerne, you could see some of these trends over time happening more slowly that these rural Democrats, these people who are probably culturally conservative, but had aligned with Democrats because they were labor union members and their parents were in labor unions and they had always basically by default aligned with the Democratic Party, that there had been kind of a breaking of that bond that had been happening over years and years. There are a number of people when I did that story who basically told me that exact story, that their dad was a, a union worker who worked in a coal mine, and but he owned guns and he opposed abortion. And as time went on, you know, he started to feel like the Democrats were not really speaking to him. He may be stuck with them because that's what he always did. But then Trump was this massive accelerant on those trends. And 
finally they felt like he was a guy who kind of spoke their language and talked the way that they might have talked on the factory floor. And so he really sped that up. And I do think it's a question of whether any other Republican can capture that energy in the same way, because few politicians are able to act the way he did and still retain their support. And in the eyes of their supporters, at least, they saw him as authentic and as real. I mean, I remember talking to some of these his big supporters out in Erie, and I was trying to make a connection with them and mentioned, well, you know, I have a lot of family from Buffalo, very close by. And they were like, Buffalo, that's New York. And, and New York's just liberals. And I was like, you know, you know, Donald Trump is from Queens. But like they thought he was, you know, real and spoke to them in, in a different kind of way. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's anybody who can replicate that. I do think that he exposed a real issue. And, and there's a significant about his appeal. We can't gloss over it. There's a significant amount of his appeal, certainly based in race and racial resentment and racial grievance. I don't think we can ignore that. But there is also part of his appeal that he spoke to a frustration that a lot of voters have felt that few politicians really spoke to, especially as there's been so much attention on like the information economy and, and the areas that we talked about, like Philly and the suburbs that have thrived. And I wonder if there's somebody in either party who can come and speak to those voters in a different way, in a way that is fact-based, because there is a factual case to be made that those areas have been overlooked in a way that is maybe free of some of disentangled from some of the, the racial resentment that was tied into the president's message. I don't know. I don't know if anybody can do that. I, I think it's a tough trick, but there's a potent group of voters out there. And in the 2022 governor's race and Senate races, they're there to be had, I think, but someone's going to have to find the right message and kind of the right presentation to do it. And just playing off of the two terms you use, message and presentation, readers like me, listeners uh, of this podcast, we just kind of take for granted. But to engage 100 diverse Pennsylvania voters in such an intensely, I mean, you, this was more or less, if I recall, in the final 100, 150 days of the, the most contentious election in American history, I mean, as, as a journalist and as a journalist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Philadelphia has a connotation when you get, you know, just a few counties outside of Philadelphia. I mean, how was that personally? How did you engage these everyday folks uh, to tell you what's on their it mind? It was a challenge for sure. And, and as you point out, yeah, a lot of people, they hear Philadelphia Inquirer and they're just like, well, you're just a liberal. Or they would tell me that, you know, even if I tried to tell the truth, my editors would never let it get past them, which is, of course, not the case, but it is a belief that was out there. So, I mean, I talked to some people, you know, on the phone in advance and tried to find out, like, where are some good places to go? And then just tried to honestly listen and, and have interviews with people where I was not being judgmental, um, where I was not, you know, it's different. I feel like when I'm interviewing an average everyday person who's sharing their thoughts versus when I'm interviewing an elected official, as far as the way you might press them or challenge them. And my goal was not to tell somebody they were wrong or show that they were wrong or right. Or it was just to kind of understand how they saw the world and how different people in different parts of the state understood our politics at that moment. And to present that to readers, not to make judgments of anybody, but to just say, this is the reality of our state. And this is the reality that this campaign is playing out in. And so, you know, Empathy is an important part of that and just trying to see the world through the eyes of the people I was able to speak to. And you just have to, you know, uh, 
it's not my instinct. I, I would rather not walk up to strangers. That's like not a, in my personality, but it's part of the job is you just have to be like, okay, it's my job to just walk up to people on the street and ask them what they think and hope they'll share. And, you know, most times, honestly, people end up being more thoughtful than you might anticipate. And I'm just thankful for people taking the time to speak with me and, and share their thoughts because I'm a total stranger um, with a notebook. I think you're more than a total stranger with a notebook. You've seen quite a bit and you have quite a good crystal ball. And I want to pivot shortly to 2022. But let's take it back to the city of Philadelphia. You know, so much reporting was about Miami and, and uh, the Biden-Harris ticket underperforming in Miami. But I think truthfully, a lot of folks were surprised at the end of the day when the dust settled from Philadelphia. And dare I say, bad things happen in Philadelphia uh, from a democratic standpoint. But as you and your colleagues look at the city of Philadelphia and demographics there, I don't know if that's entirely Northeast Philly, uh, where my mother's family is uh, from, but there's change of foot in Philadelphia if you have a Republican presidential candidate getting north of 15%. Yeah. And, and that was a surprise. I mean, and as you point out, a lot of this was folks in the kind of Northeast Philly in the river wards, people who are kind of that white working class, you know, they're police, they're firefighters, they're relatives of police or firefighters. That really is Donald Trump's base. And there is a significant portion of those types of people in Philadelphia as well. So there was that element. But I think what caught a lot of us by surprise, you know, he did better or Joe Biden did worse, however you want to put it, in a number of very heavily Latino wards, uh, in some wards that were largely black. And now I don't want to overstate this because if you look at the exit polls, Joe Biden's still doing better than 90% among black voters. And in the close to 80%, 75 to 80% among Latino voters. So we shouldn't overstate which way those voters were going. But Donald Trump certainly did better than expected, did better than some past Republicans have done. And that is an area, you know, we saw some hints of that with younger black voters, younger black men, particularly. That's an area that I kind of saw some hints of when I was doing my divided state story, but it didn't seem to match up with the polling. And I thought, well, maybe this is just, you know, a strange couple of people I'm talking to. You know, you don't want to extrapolate too much from three or four interviews to an entire population. But, you know, one of the people I spoke with who thought that the president encouraged racism, if not was racist himself, also said to me that, you know, he thought about voting for him anyway, and that a lot of people he knew would thought about voting for him. And I was with him and he was a volunteer who was putting up signs for Biden. And we were with a ward leader. And when the volunteer said that, um, you know, he knew people thinking about voting for Biden, the ward leader said, are they black? And he said, yes. He said, are they poor? He said, yes. And, and the ward leader was kind of astounded. And I was a little surprised, too. But, you know, there was they definitely harbored some doubts about Biden. They were very aware of his record on criminal justice uh, and some of the things he had said about the 94 crime bill. Uh, and I don't know if that's because the Trump campaign really hammered that issue pretty well or just based on their own research. But that was one thing that I kind of in hindsight, I wish I'd given a little more weight to. Uh, it didn't match up with the polls, but anecdotally, we heard some of it beforehand. You know, we started this uh, this podcast with an interview with Professor Chris Bork, who's a completely nonpartisan a pollster um, at a Muhlenberg College. And you mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of your reporting, a lot of the national reporting uh, was the horse race that happens every election. 
But what was it about the polling this cycle? Now, we didn't have a Senate race, but there's certainly a lot of probably to this day disgruntled Democratic (laughs) Senate candidates who did not see it coming uh, because the polls were quite different even up until the first week of November? Yeah, it's a question that that I've tried to answer. Um, I've spoken to some really good pollsters, including Chris, including Patrick Murray of Monmouth University over in New Jersey. I don't know that yet anybody has a full grasp on on what happened, but you know, from what they've said, and, and they're really smart people about it, is you've got two instances of Donald Trump on the ballot, and both instances, the polls were off in the same direction. They were they underestimated the amount of support he had and that that leads to some belief that either that there are maybe this shy Trump voter and, and but not in a way that is often discussed where people see it as, well, they were they lie to pollsters about supporting Trump, but more that they just they are people who don't trust institutions. One of Donald Trump's biggest messages was not to trust institutions like the media, the FBI and polling, I think, falls within that category. And so there's a, a theory that makes some sense to me that um, these folks just wouldn't answer polls. And the Republicans who do answer polls are a different kind of Republican than the ones who are now actually showing up as part of the wider electorate. And so I think that's a hypothesis right now. It's one that to me seems plausible, but I think there's a lot more research to be done on that. Yes, I, I had not thought about that. that. That's fascinating. I think that that's a pretty accurate hypothesis, but uh, that needs to be teased out. You know, you mentioned the river wards. And as, as this podcast proceeds and we clean up uh, all the lessons from 2020, you know, we're going to get and do a deep dive into uh, uh, so listeners uh, statewide and D.C. can understand what a river ward is. But, yeah, I think you've probably done more reporting than anyone on, on Senator Toomey. So if we can go back to that day in October when Senator Toomey, uh, I was certainly surprised, uh, announced that he will not be pursuing any future office. But Kind of take folks uh, through your emotions that day, how you learned about that, and then what does that mean as, as you begin to look 20-some months into the future Yeah, here? I mean, that was a crazy day because um, I was out in Erie County finishing the last day of my reporting for the Divided States of Pennsylvania story. And, and as you mentioned earlier, that was something that I had been reporting on for close to two months, both by phone and by traveling. And so I had driven out to Erie. It's a really long trip from D.C., and I'd done my last interviews and I went out to Lake Erie just to kind of take a breath and feel like, okay, I've, I've done a good job. And, and I was going to go have a nice dinner before driving home the next day. And we got a tip that that he was planning to announce he wasn't going to run. And I honestly did not believe it because I knew it was possible that he wouldn't run, but I didn't think there was any way he would make that announcement before election day. I mean, we had written that it was possible it was his last term. And, and there were a lot of hints that that was maybe the case, but we thought he might run for governor. And again, I figured he would wait to see how the presidential race shook out and then make a decision. So I didn't even believe that tip at first, but I started to make some calls and started to get a sense that maybe it was right. Drove to this place I was going to have dinner, but I kind of was waiting for these calls to come back. I sat in the front seat of my rental car for like an hour and a half writing up the background of the story in case we got it confirmed so we could just hit send. Late that night, I, I got what we were felt pretty strongly was confirmation, but we wanted to kind of sleep on it and make sure that we were right. This is not the kind of story you ever want to be wrong on. You know, you want to be first, but you don't want to be wrong. That's that's number one. The next morning was driving back to DC. I stopped at a rest stop on the Pennsylvania Turnpike 
got, you know, had some more conversations that put me in a position where we felt like, yeah, we're right. We got to go with this story. And then just spent the next few hours at that rest stop, filling out the story, fielding phone calls, tweeting information. It was a shock. You know, it was a a quick detour from the presidential race at that point. I mean, at that point, we were in the last 35 days or so of, of the presidential race. So not what I had expected to be writing about. And just looking ahead, you know, I think it opens this huge question for the Republican Party in 2022, because if Pat Toomey was running, he would be the face of the Republican Party. And we kind of know who Pat Toomey is and how he campaigns and what issues he emphasizes. Now it's wide open. It could be someone who kind of follows in Pat Toomey's footsteps, or it could be someone who tries to follow in Trump's footsteps, or it could be some totally different version of a Republican. There's no statewide presence like Pat Toomey that's in the mix right now. So they have a governor's race and a Senate race. And I think, you know, nationally, the Republican Party has to figure out what they want to do post-Trump, whether they want to follow him or go in a different direction. And Pennsylvania is going to be one of the first places where we see that play out. And so I think it's going to keep Pennsylvania as a microcosm of the country once again. Just yeah, so, so two final questions and really appreciate you stopping by my kitchen table, Jonathan. What, you know, everyone always says all politics is local, but I guess maybe we've indirectly referenced this with, for example, this summer, Black Lives Matter and multi-generational Philadelphia police families, for example. With an eye to 2022, based on everything you've seen of being 20 years as as, as a great award-winning journalist, is it national wins that you think dictate, or is it from the ground up, or is it some sort of uh, hybrid harmony in between? I don't know if there's an answer, but it's something that's been bugging me. My instinct is very much that it's national. We'll see again. I think Donald Trump was such a unique figure that I want to see another election or two to see whether things kind of revert back a little bit. I don't think they're ever going back all the way, but whether they revert back a little towards what we knew before or if this is just the new normal. But I mean, everything so much was about I'll give you an example. So much was about Donald Trump in 2017. You know, Democrats went out and won county seats in like Bucks County and Chester County that they had not won in decades, if not ever. And a, a smart Democrat pointed out to me like, I don't think Democrats were like really angry at the Republican prothonotary in Bucks County. They just wanted to vote against any Republican they possibly could because they couldn't yet vote against Donald Trump. And so I think that is a measure of how national it is. And I'll tell you, when I was out in Western Pennsylvania, the number of people who brought up Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who she represents the Bronx, she has nothing to do really, I mean, with Western Pennsylvania, obviously her policies could have an effect, but honestly, she's a freshman Democrat. You know, her ideas are not really fully embraced by leadership, but her name, you know, resonated out there. And so I do think that national politics is shaping so much and it's really hard for individual candidates to distinguish themselves. I haven't gone state by state, but I think if we look at the Senate races, they almost all lined up with the way the presidential race, you know, Maine is probably an exception, but Democrats won Georgia, Arizona, you know, so I think it is very national and the intensity of Trump drove some of that. I don't know that we're going back the other way though. Look, I'm going to editorialize, no pun intended, uh, but I just think this is why we need robust local news. And I, I, I don't have some sort of magic wand to bring back more newspapers into the state that they were covering the 1996 uh, presidential election. But yeah, it is, it is something as folks get their news from national radio or national uh, evening shows. I'm curious, final question. I mean, how does someone 
build a career like yours. We have a lot of student listeners and, you know, you're now on a first name basis with you know, every member of the Pennsylvania congressional delegation and you're read by tens of thousands of people every day. Um, and how did this happen over the last uh, uh, two um, decades? It's a tough question. Uh, and I think honestly that the way it happened for me might not be the way that it happens these days because the media landscape has changed so much. You know, my first job was at a small daily in central New Jersey that just happened to give me a shot. And uh, and I was able to kind of chart a path from there from where I went to cover local news to state government in New Jersey to where the Inquirer hired me to do the same beat. And then at the Inquirer, there were a lot of opportunities. I just got to yeah. ask you real quick. There's a, there's a raging debate in my household. My wife is from mm. central Jersey. But some people claim that Central Jersey doesn't exist, <laughs> that there's a North Jersey, South Jersey. But obviously, we're focused on Pennsylvania. But when you say, yeah, well, our website was centraljersey.com. So I, and I'm from North Jersey. So I fully believe okay, that right, Central right. Jersey exists, that there, is, that there is a middle ground there. Uh, okay. so, so that's for whatever that's worth. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is just persistence. It's a very difficult field. A lot of the paths that had once existed have narrowed because. Journalism has, you know, there's been a lot of losses. There aren't just aren't as many jobs as there once were. And I had a lot of doors shut on me before I was hired by the Inquirer and, and fortunately to be hired by them. So I think it's persistence. I think it's doing good work. And I think it's, you know, I had to tell myself this a lot during 2020, take what is in front of you and do what is in front of you as best as it can humanly be done and let everything else take care of itself from there. And, and that's, you know, something I struggled to embrace at times. But when I did, you know, that's what produced the divided states. And that's what produced some of what I think was some of my best work of, of the last year. And so I'm trying to live that. I can't say I always hold up to it, but, but that's my philosophy that I attempt to adhere to. That's a damn good philosophy. You know, my earliest political memories were watching the 1992 convention uh, around a kitchen table uh, with my late grandfather from Northeast Philly, who was a Philadelphia Inquirer photographer. So I would argue good things <laughs> come out of Philadelphia, including your reporting. So thanks so much. I really appreciate you lending your time and your Absolutely, Larry. Glad to do it. It's fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.